Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Commercial Free Summertime, where I am committed to no sponsor because I'd like to bring you a whole episode uninterrupted. So when you're driving to the beach or you're going to the mountains or doing whatever it is you do, you can enjoy a conversation with someone who has a cool job or is thinking about fixing work in a different way. This week's guest is a real treat for me. It's my friend Jeff Gordonier, and he's the author of a book about the most famous and most celebrated chef in the world, Rene Redzepi. The book is called Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. And this book is about leadership, innovation, creativity, and saying yes to experiences that can change your life. I met Jeff back in the good old days of blogging over a decade ago when he wrote a book called X Saves the World. And it's about some of the greatest creatives, thinkers of that time, and they were all of Generation X. And so before you knew anything about generational thinking in the workforce and the debate between baby boomers and Gen Xers and millennials and zennials or whatever they're called, Jeff was on top of that conversation. The funny thing is, like most Gen Xers, we're ahead of our time. And so that book did not perform well. (laughs) I mean, it did okay. And Jeff doesn't talk about it anymore because he, again, is a Gen Xer, right? And he's like, man, I'm over that. So whether he's writing in the New York Times or Real Simple, wherever it is, I'm just a big fan of Jeff Gordonier. And I've loved seeing his journey from disaffected Gen X writer to content and happy middle-aged man with a family of four living in the exurbs of New York City. And I really hope you enjoyed this conversation about risk change, transformation, and Renee Redzepi, the world's greatest chef. So sit tight and we'll be right back with more of Jeff Gordonier and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. And so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Jeff. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hi. Thanks for having me, Lori. <laughs> it's so nice to see you face to face. Good to see you. Yeah. Thanks for your support. Of course, my goodness. Well, I love a fellow writer who is cynical and of my age and of my generation and doesn't buy into the milieu of generational thinking out there. I think you're mm. someone who has been there, done that, and you're on to bigger things. And that's why you're on the podcast today, because you have a broad view of culture. You have a broad view of people who are working in the world and you also have a cool job. So maybe let's start us out in the right way by telling us who you are and what your job is. Okay. My name's Jeff Gordonier. I'm the food and drinks editor of Esquire magazine. That means I do profiles of chefs and I do a column about food every issue. And I also put together primarily, this is sort of my primary charge, the best new restaurants list every year, which is a national list. And with Kevin Sintumung, my editor at Esquire, in tandem with Kevin, I put together the best bars list every year. So pretty much perpetually scouting out great restaurants and bars around the country and the world. And I contribute to the New York Times. I contribute to Real Simple, Travel and Leisure. 
poetryfoundation.org. You know, I write about poetry on the side as well. And I'm the author of a new book called Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. I'm looking at the subtitle. <laughs> make sure I get it correct. It is my book, after all, which is a book about Rene Redzepi. He's a chef in Denmark who runs and owns a restaurant called Noma that has widely been viewed as the best restaurant in the world for the last decade. That's always debatable. I think what's not debatable is that it has been the most influential restaurant of the last decade in food circles. He's a, an incredible leader. Uh, he inspires his troops to push, push, push forward, create new dishes, 100 new dishes a year. They never repeat the menu. Every menu is tabula rasa, sort of created out of nothing. And the book is actually about my relationship with him and how our lives dovetailed. It's about a moment in Rene's life and career when he was blowing everything up. He had the best restaurant in the world. He could have coasted for 20, 30, 50 years, just, just cash the checks, basically just money rolling in. He decided to blow it all up. He decided to close the original location of Noma and kind of just travel around the world doing pop-ups in Australia and Mexico also exploring foodways in Scandinavia, uh, while he built a new one on a site that looked essentially like Chernobyl Jr. <laughs> like it was not what you'd imagine <laughs> any restaurant, let alone the best restaurant in the world. It's not even where you would imagine a, a hamburger stand. It was just a garbage strewn lot. Uh, it looked potentially toxic, you know. So that risk was fascinating to me. And at the same time, I was going through sort of a wholesale implosion in my own life, going through a divorce, which was emotionally wrenching. And I was, I would say, quite adrift from the outside. My career seemed to be going well. I was at the New York Times. I was in the food section, writing for Tea Magazine as well, the style section, travel section. It was very productive, but just kind of running in circles, sort of like thinking backwards or stuck in the past, gnawing on guilt and mistakes. Yeah. Whereas Renee was constantly moving forward. So you're in this point in your life where it looks like on the outside, you're doing good work. You may be yeah. doing some of the best work of your life at that point. Occasionally. Yeah. And so you're you're inside, you're struggling, you're stuck, yeah. right? As you describe in the book, you're taking these long walks through the woods, but not really going anywhere. And I would encourage anybody who's got a beach weekend this summer or any time to read this book. This book was fascinating and fun. I've read it twice. So you're oh, out really? there. Yeah. Wow. You're out there walking. You're out there just kind of searching for the world. And then you stumble upon the opportunity to follow the greatest chef in the world, at least at that time. Yeah. He sort of invited me yeah. to join join the circus. Tell us about that. It's funny because I actually think this is a book about changing your life, you know, and Renee was changing his life and I was changing my life. And we met at that juncture, you know. And but you said no. Yeah, well, I was inclined to say no because I was depressed and because I thought he was going to lecture me about his new Nordic movement. I hadn't met him and I thought he's probably going to be kind of this pretentious pompous Scandinavian chef who's going to lecture me about like his manifesto, his <laughs> principles right. and, you know, which are all very honorable, frankly, yeah, but sure. I just wasn't in the place for it. On the particular day he reached out, I was just in a dark place. Yeah. But I do have this journalist's impulse to succumb to yes and just meet with people because I love learning and connections are important. And it turned out that it was this meeting that changed my life. It was it was this transformative moment. Rene turned out to be this pretty chill dude. I'm from California. He's from Denmark, but his family's originally Muslim immigrants from Macedonia to Denmark. And he came off as very kind of Californian. And he, he was like, you know, 
you and I, you're, you're an LA boy. You and I, we should go get tacos in Mexico. I was like, what are you talking about? Greatest chef in the world. Yeah. You know? And also, what are you <laughs> talking about? How dare you talk about tacos? Yeah, yeah. Danish man. What do you <laughs> right. know about ta- tacos? You know, but it turned out that he wanted to go on this adventure through Mexico. And long story short, it happened. But I mean, it seemed completely impossible at the time. A lot of the book is about learning that there are people in the world who have the drive and charisma to make the impossible happen, which is if you say yes to a person like Rene Redzepi, you'll find yourself in impossible situations. It's sort of like Quantum Leap. Do you remember that show? I do remember. I'm old enough for that show. Yeah. You are? Yeah. Scott Bakula. Wow. Well, you, you seem significantly younger than I am. But, you know, in, in that show, people would... The Scott Bakula character would just wake up and he'd be like in the middle of the French Revolution or he'd wake up, you know, and he was like, you know, in the Wild West or something. And and I found that with Rene Redzepi, I'd sort of wake up like, why am I in Oaxaca? Like, or why am I on a fishing boat above the Arctic Circle in Norway in February? Yeah. It was because of a series of yeses to this charismatic leader. You know, you said yes. And I was really impressed by that throughout the book. I mean, you said yes when normal people might otherwise say no. Sensible people. Sensible people, right. But you didn't always have the immediate funds for it. I think there's this belief in the world that a culture writer at Esquire, a food writer at Esquire, the New York Times would have unlimited funds and unlimited resources. And of course, you would say yes to all of these groundbreaking trips all over the world. But these were not easy decisions for you? Well, they were not subsidized by the New York Times or Esquire. These were trips I paid for myself. So I was paying for the flights, the hotels, the car transportation, the meals that were not Noma, you know, and the central meals. So, you know, what is life about, right? You get to that kind of Maslow peak experience. Yeah. Yeah. Self-actualization. Yeah. Yeah, Like what, what are we here for? Like, I mean, I guess I am drawn to those peak experiences and I'm drawn to the prospect of enlightenment and something about Rene Redzepi and Noma intoxicated me in that way. And I felt like I was going to learn a lot. You know, he has this mode of leadership that I think a lot of leaders in offices of all different kinds of fields could learn from him. Like he has a way of pushing people by creating a sense of mission in the workplace. So it's not just, yo, we're cooking, we have customers coming in, get that dish done. We're busy. It's not like that. It's this sense of elevated mission and focus. So one of the sections in the book is about Saturday night projects at Noma. They're open from Tuesday to Saturday and closed Sunday and Monday. So leading into Sunday morning, you would think everybody's exhausted. They're, They're completely wiped out. I mean, they've been pushed to the brink of exhaustion. And at that very moment, when the last customer's diners, guests, whatever they call them, leave. Actually, some will stay to watch this. I have stayed to watch it several times. The Noma Kitchen kind of dims down the lights, locks the door, and has something called Saturday Night Projects. Throughout the week, young cooks in the kitchen who are from all over the world, they might be from Brazil, Ireland, Korea, it's a global kitchen. They have been charged with the task of creating a new dish while doing their normal work at Noma, which is substantial, they have also had to create something that reflects their own culture, their own spirit, their mindset. And what ensues at Saturday Night Projects is a kind of episode of Chopped, where they all put their dishes out and they've made enough that everyone in the kitchen can eat. So it's many plates of it. And um, Renee and the top leaders of the kitchen will taste it and comment and critique it 
one after the other. And it's public too. He puts it on social media and stuff every week. So at the very moment, they're exhausted and about to collapse and they just want to go home, you know, maybe have a beer, maybe just sleep. Most of them tell me they just want to go home and sleep. They actually get more energized. They get fired up and they're put in the spotlight. That kind of leadership is fascinating to me. You know, it reminds me of a Steve Jobs or somebody like that, you know, and there, there can be a dark edge to that in pushing people, obviously. But I never saw resentment in the times I was at Saturday Night Projects. People actually seemed to be pretty fired up. And then they'd go out, then they crank some heavy metal and some hip hop, and they clean up the kitchen meticulously. And they go out into the early, you know, the wee hours of Sunday morning kind of charged up. Yeah, believe it. You know, there's a ton of research out there that if you're learning, you're growing and you're Mm. happier. Mm. And I saw that in your book. And I didn't just see it in the Saturday Night Experiments, which I loved. And I think there are a lot of corollaries for corporate America and the global corporate scene. But I saw that in you as a writer. Oh, wow. I mean, I saw you This book was your Saturday night project in many ways. I can see you kind of assembling it as you were on the road and putting it together. And I wonder what it's like to be a character in your own book. It's uncomfortable for me as a journalist. It's not something I wanted to do necessarily. I started including myself because of certain comic scenes in the book that didn't make sense without my presence. Yeah, like that time you were like a prep cook. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Yeah, like there's a whole scene where all these famous chefs convened wildly. I mean, Jose Andres, Jacques Pepin, David Chang, Danny Bowen, Kylie Kwong, Alex Atala from all over the world, like the Avengers of food (laughs) in Rene Redzepi's backyard. And Rene asked me to cook with them. Of course, I made a series of ghastly mistakes. And the mistakes are funny. And they're not funny if I don't include myself as sort of a foil, you know, as the fool. Right, right. So then there's another scene the first time I ate at Noma, where my dining companion, a lovely designer from the New York Times named Grant Gold, spoiler alert, but failed to show up. (laughs) (laughs) So that wasn't funny without me there because I'm obsessed with punctuality. I'm always early. So then when I created those scenes, I realized I'm in the book. And then an editor says, well, who are you? Who is Jeff? Like, who is this character, this sidekick, you know, the Nick Carraway to Jay Gatsby here? Who are you? And then I realized that my inertia, my stasis, my stuckness were all worthy of exploring a little bit as a contrast to Renee. So then I started to include myself. The scenes where I talk about divorce, they were probably literally the last scenes I wrote because they were so difficult and I was avoiding them. And I could have gone deeper and darker, but I decided I didn't want to indulge that too much and bore the reader. You know, I, I wanted this to be a swift moving book, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely swift. I thought it was interesting when you did include it because we have a contrast. We have a man who is at the top of his career and, you know, full of life and cooking and attacking the world. And I don't know, on 60 Minutes, right? Rene Redzepi is yeah. at the top of his game when he's on yeah. 60 Minutes. Come yeah. on. And then here you are also creatively doing great work, but you're just so stuck. And I would imagine that if you haven't already, you will hear from readers who feel that in their own careers, who feel like, man, I've been doing this job. I know I do it well, but something's wrong. Oh, Laura, you, I got to tell you, honestly, the emails and DMs I'm getting from people. Yeah, believe Like it. it seriously seems to be striking a chord. I'm not just hyping this. It's crazy to me. And people sending me emails like, I read this book. I couldn't sleep. I stayed up all night and finished it. 
I'm going to quit my job. <laughs> I'm getting a divorce, uh-huh, you know, and I'm like, yeah. whoa, 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 slow down there. Slow down, partner. You know, like, don't try this at home. Yeah, but but do no, try it, it at home, though, right? No, but it is important. Right? It yeah. is. I'm, I'm teasing. I mean, actually, change. if something's not working for you, you do need to change it. I mean, I think Renee himself is also changing a lot in the book, and not to be Hollywood about it, but there's two arcs here, and... For instance, to address your audience in in terms of work and leadership and all that, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me is that when he started out, he opened Noma 2003. He was uh, he's described himself in the book as a monster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you call him at one point? A dictator? Or maybe I heard you refer to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he he was so angry all the time at his team that he got shingles at one point. He was hurting his own health as well as Theirs maybe by, you know, these are, we're talking about the early days. Now, look. But wait, isn't that kitchen culture? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, that's a traditional aspect, particularly from the French, of this kind of militaristic system of taking orders from the chef, taking abuse from the chef. I mean, and you have chefs as celebrated as Eric Repair. Let's see, Daniel Hume at uh, 11 Madison Park. They've talked about the same thing, that they went through periods of, of rage, essentially. And so, you know, Rene has transformed the kitchen culture at Noma now and has surrendered a lot of that ego and has certainly lessened his anger and now sees creating dishes and creating hospitality, you know, fostering hospitality as a collaborative experience in a way that maybe he didn't early on. So, I mean, I'm sure he blows up now and then. Sure. Uh, Kitchens are super high pressure, you know, but I think all across the restaurant world, that's changing. And I think that it probably leads to better cooking and certainly better moods in the workplace. You know, you retain cooks. I mean, you know, when I was there, I was just at Noma again in Copenhagen a month ago. I'm kind of like a deadhead now. I follow the band around, you know. You're bringing so, all your family and friends yeah, as well. Just bring people. You want converting to convert them? Let me yeah, know. yeah, I'm in. Okay. I was walking around the grounds of Noma, and I said, "What's that uh, weird building?" And he said, "Oh, that's our sauna. You know, we have a. They now have a whole steam room sauna building for the staff, like a wellness program. Yeah, yeah. they're starting to work on that. I love that. They're changing also their focus on the family meal. Yeah." You know, they used to have big tacos and brisket sandwiches and stuff, and they seem to be focusing more on plant-based family meal. I think Renee is very concerned with the health of his mm-hmm. employees, but he's also concerned with sustainability, carbon footprint, things like that. Yeah. There's also, you know, a ridiculous scene in the book with a workout. So, Tell us more about that scene. I love that scene. Yeah, so that also wouldn't have worked without my presence <laughs> right? because I don't work at all, work out at all. I just kind of walk, as you see. So. His mode of cooking is known as New Nordic, but it's really basically naturalism. It's a kind of cooking that goes deep, deep, deep into nature through foraging, fermentation, the use of live fire, almost like back to the land kind of cooking, right? And so it turns out his workout is kind of back to the land too. So when I went with Lauren, my now wife, and we went to do the workout, which I only did for the book. I mean, I wasn't going to do it for fun. (laughs) You know, walked into his backyard and I was like, yo, double R, you know, where's the gym? Like, where's the equipment? And he was like, oh, you're looking at it. Yeah. Like, that's your terrifying. Bo- yeah, what do you your mean? Your body, yeah. Well, just trees and like sand and like dirt on rocks and like ropes that he'd hung from branches. And so I was like, this is truly terrifying. Yeah. What is this workout? Well, it turns out it's almost like this primitive Viking kind of workout that's new Nordic itself, where they like scuttle around the grass backwards like crabs and you have to slap each other's knees. And if he slaps your knees, you have to do a bunch of burpees, Ugh, you know, which the which, worst. Yeah, I thought yeah. I was gonna have a stroke. Yeah. But 
you know, he invites members of the Noma team to do this workout. Oh, you know, here's an interesting component that could be relevant for your audience. Renee's wife, Nadine, is also a great cook, has a cookbook out called Downtime. It's beautiful. And her mom, Benta Svensson, lives with them. Okay, so that really helps from a childcare standpoint, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, she, they have three daughters. And Benta is so nurturing with people. I mean, last time I was there, she was hugging me. She was like, she was like, Jeff, it's you're such a good person, so good. I mean, she makes you feel so good that Renee hired her, his mother-in-law, which is a leap. Yeah. You know, in interpersonal dynamics, absolutely. you know, usually to be like the in-house counselor wow. for the entire Noma team. So, Almost like their HR lady. HR yeah. slash therapist. I like, love it. Kind of earth mother and yeah. listener. And and you know, so anyone in the team who's feeling depressed feeling like he or she's sliding down into a dark place, you know, Bento will will sit down with that person and really take the time. I mean, look, it's not perfect. This, you know, nothing's perfect. But I mean, I think this is an exceptional operation. That's one thing I wanted to write about. Like there's an increasingly as Renee learns more and grows as as a leader, he and Nadine have just fostered something that's rare. Well, the thing you're describing in business world terms is called the employee experience. There's actually like a thing around it, a definition. And I was interested in the evolution of the employee experience because at yeah. the beginning, you do describe him as this dictator, right? Yeah. This, this overlord of leaders. And then he, I wouldn't say grows a heart. I wouldn't <laughs> describe it like that. Like the Grinch. Yeah, yeah. But there's definitely more compassion, more empathy, and also yes. an understanding to your earlier point that happier workers are more effective workers. They're more productive workers and they're going to create better food. They're going to create a better consumer experience. And I see that playing out in the book and the success of Noma. You know what I think is a major shift for some of these chefs and maybe certain leaders is the realization that there's power in sharing the spotlight, that trying to hog all the credit and all the oxygen is pointless in the end. You know, I think people who read the book will see that it's a little like Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder review, like Joni Mitchell just shows up and Patti Smith shows up and Allen Ginsberg shows up. And then and this, you know, Danny Bowen from Mission Chinese Food, Malcolm Livingston, who's a pastry chef raised in the Bronx, Rocio Sanchez, Roberto Solis, Enrique Olvera, all these chefs kind of come and go, Dave Chang. And many of the people in the Noma kitchen, you can see sort of rise up in terms of their voice in the kitchen. I think that Renee has come to see the wisdom in sharing that spotlight and and really focusing on the team. He has an incredible eye for talent, and he's really lately you know, sort of diverting the media attention toward David Zilber, this brilliant guy who runs the fermentation lab, and Meta Soberg. She's a Dane who runs the R&D component, which is probably the the fermentation and R&D are the most important things at Noma because they're always moving forward with these flavors. So, you know, this is weird, but I've learned this on the book tour too because, you know, a lot of authors... Eh, this ain't news to anyone, but they got big egos, right? And I am trying to do a book tour where I really share the, the mic with other people. And I don't mean just moderators, but other chefs too. You know, so Malcolm Livingston, the pastry chef from the Bronx I mentioned, he was at my event last night in Brooklyn. And he is a superstar. He just radiated confidence and insight. And I was so happy he was there. And I was I was actually happy to hear him talk more yeah, than, yeah. than I, you know. And Elena Regan, a chef from Chicago, who's also an author. We did an event together in Philadelphia. Claudette Zapita, a Mexican-American chef in California. We're doing one in Ojai. Uh, Danny Bowen from Mission Chinese Food was at the first one. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, it's 
good to have more diversity and inclusion and get more voices up there. It's good for everyone, but it's actually even good for you, you know, of course, because you're listening and you're you're not making it just this ego-driven thing. So I think that kind of real honoring of collaboration and listening is the future for so many businesses. But we did have a culture in the media where these celebrity chefs were hyped for so long. And maybe you can talk about this as a culture writer. It's not just the celebrity chef. It was the celebrity CEO, the celebrity fashion designer. It was the one, the individual. And there was this feeling of scarcity in the media, like there can Mm. only be one and we're going to put a crown on this individual. So Do you think the media is changing? Do you think the culture is changing? Or do you think the chefs are taking it upon themselves to push more collaboration, diversity and inclusion? Are they ahead or are they behind the curve? I think that they're ahead. I think the two chefs that are probably the most significant in terms of the cultural conversation at the moment would be Rene Redzepi and David Chang. And both of them have for years now been moving in this direction. I mean, David Chang's restaurants as part of the Momofuku empire, he doesn't even pretend to be the chef at these restaurants. You know, he is... Wait, wait, he didn't make my noodles in Vegas. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, like some of the some of the celebrity chefs still kind of maintain the oh, illusion yeah, that true. they're cooking. Yeah. They really yeah. are. They're like, oh, it's a... It's, it's a, Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. 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 Let's pick on him. Yeah. You know, he's not really involved sometimes. Or, I mean, maybe he drops in. Whereas, you know, Paul Carmichael, he's a black chef. I think he's from Barbados originally. Brilliant. He was at uh, Momofuku Mapesh here in Midtown. Manhattan. And then he moved to Sydney and he runs the kitchen at David Chang's Australia restaurant. I think it's called Saibo. I don't remember the name. I've never been to it. But friends of mine like Pete Wells from the New York Times who have been said it's an absolute masterpiece of a restaurant. Like it's visionary and it's Paul's cooking. It's like that is now a shift where the celebrity chefs are saying, you know what? No, it's Paul Carmichael's vision here and let's let it fly and let's see what happens. I will say this about celebrity chefs. Okay, because there's a huge questioning within food media. In fact, it's sort of tearing down of the fabric of celebrity chefs, right? Which which has been built up for a couple of decades now through Food Network yeah. and magazines. And But, you know, there's a reckoning, obviously. The Me Too movement led, you know, the odious behavior yeah, absolutely. of certain chefs brought them crashing down in the Me Too movement. And so in the wake of that, understandably, there are questions about, well, did being famous give them a license somehow or make them believe they had a license to do these horrible things. And then, you know, wait, what do you think about that? You talked, I do have strong feelings about it, which is, I I think that the kind of people who are abusive like that would have been abusive regardless, whether they were famous or not. And the fact of fame is not the problem. Like celebrity itself is not the problem. The problem is abuse of power. The problem is people being bad, right? But there are so many examples of celebrity chefs who do wonderful things. They use their fame in positive ways. Jose Andres absolutely feeding people in Puerto Rico and Houston, victims of natural disasters. Okay, if he wasn't so famous, he couldn't do that. He couldn't mobilize that. He catalyzes that. He's a good man. He's, you know, Dan Barber standing up for this progressive thinking about seeds, which frankly could save humanity. I mean, thinking about... Wait, tell us more about that. Well, he has a whole line of seeds called Rose and he's working with farmers and plant scientists and people like that, botanists, to create seeds. that They're like heirloom seeds for kogi nut squash, for instance, a specific squash that he has developed for Blue Hill at Stone Barns, but also now for sweet green for a broader audience. More nutrition, more nutritional, you know, vegetables, produce, but also better flavor. You can just like roast a kogi nut squash, not even put 
maple syrup on it or butter and just scoop it out. And it's absolutely mm, delicious. Sounds it's, great. Yeah, but it's also good for you. That's right. And good for the world. Yeah. So, so Dan Barber's like, you know, he's in a position of power and influence. And he's using that, I think, in a positive way with, in that regard. So when I hear this idea of like, no more celebrity chefs, they should go back in the kitchen. That sounds weirdly aristocratic to me. That sounds a little bit like Gosford Park, Downton Abbey. Like, I'm not sure I want to see the cook. Can't the cook go back into the scullery? Yeah. <laughs> it's time for, I'm just tired of seeing him. Like, what are you saying? That they should be servants? I mean, seriously, think no, that can, through. Think that through. Yeah. Like, if, if writers can be rich and famous, I mean, not I, but some, Stephen King, if actors and musicians and athletes and entrepreneurs can be rich and famous, why can't chefs? I think it's just all about anyone who achieves some degree of influence in the world should be using it positively, which is not news to anyone. No. But. Well, that's one of the questions that I have in thinking about Renee and thinking about the celebrity chef culture. You know, there are men out there right now who will not mentor women because they don't want to be alone with women. They don't want to put themselves in a position where they could be falsely accused as if that happens on the regular, right? right. But this is a concern, at least in corporate America and some of the audiences that you're going to address. Do you hear any of that within the world of food? No. Good. No, not at all. Yeah. I haven't heard that. In fact, I think we're right now we're living through, fortunately, a blossoming, like a golden moment for women in gastronomy and black chefs in America, frankly, making a huge impact long overdue. The media has basically ignored their great work for decades. So and who should we be paying attention to then? Oh, my God. Where shall yeah, I begin? I anyway. mean, just in terms of in terms of African American chefs, Kwame Amuachi at Kith and Kin in Washington D.C., Mashama Bailey at the Gray in Savannah, Georgia, J.J. Johnson who has field trip here in New York. Eduardo Jordan, June Baby in Seattle, Washington. Eduardo Jordan won two James Beard Awards in the same year, maybe a year and a half ago. These are visionaries. There's a revolution afoot. These are people whose restaurants probably would not have gotten much of the spotlight even five, ten years ago, and it's a scandal. Frankly, it was a, it was a huge failure on the part of food media. One of the main characters in my book, Malcolm Livingston, you know, who's the pastry chef at Noma, is a black guy from the Bronx. Genius. I mean, like a palate. Like he can create combinations of flavors, not just in a dessert, in a savory course that'll blow your mind and are radically delicious, you know, and he's rightly getting the spotlight and getting the opportunities he deserves now. So, I mean, my favorite restaurants in New York are generally run by women. I don't know why, but uh, I know that the restaurants that I go back to, the, the restaurant I go back to the most, and I'm not alone in this regard among food writers, is Via Carota in the West Village. It's run by Jody Williams and Rita Sodi, who are married and are also business partners. Yeah. And I had my first date there with Lauren Fonda. We got engaged there. I had my 50th birthday party there. <laughs> Is your picture up on the wall? Are you one of those customers? I, I think that I've probably sent 50,000 people to Via Carota over the years. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, at this point, I think Jody Williams resents it and wants me to stop because last I heard there was a four hour wait to get into oh the damn place. So the secret to anyone who's listening who's in Manhattan is go at lunch or even better, go at like three in the afternoon. It's the same menu. Can order everything and just if it's a rainy day, it's particularly lovely. Just oh, sit in there. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned some of these visionary chefs and how they're creating amazing flavor palettes and just crazy combinations. And as I start to think about our conversation in terms of the world of work, I love yeah. this word that you use, this visionary word, because I think there are so many applications of it. You know, people can be visionary marketers, they can be visionary sales professionals, but generally not, right? The visionary <laughs> chefs, like yeah. that's awesome. How do you define that? You know, 
Yesterday, I went to the Brooklyn Museum with my daughter, Margot, who's 17, before my appearance in Brooklyn to talk about the book. We had some time to kill, and I love museums. The first thing we did was we went and saw Gary Winogrand's photography, all these slides. I love that kind of vintage photography. William Eggleston, Diane Arbus. I, I'm just like, that's my favorite kind of art, right? And on the wall, they were talking about how Winogrand was just marginalized when he was coming up. I mean, he really didn't get much recognition at the time. We now see his images. I mean, I was gasping. I was almost choked up. They were so beautiful. Then I walked, we walked to the fifth floor and we saw the Pierre Cardin exhibition. And we're seeing all these space age kind of unisex, post-gender fashion. I mean, absolutely exquisite, fabulous, colorful, future thinking, forward thinking. And there was something on the wall there about how at a certain point, because of one of his innovations involving ready-to-wear clothing, Pierre Cardin was cast out of like the high agency of fashion in France. It's so French, you know, like they, they were like, expel him. He is not one of us anymore. <laughs> right. He's trying to speak to the people. This is wrong. What do you, you know, and of course, eventually they invited him back. He circled back. David Bowie. Uh, there was a whole exhibition about David Bowie at the Brooklyn Museum a year or two ago. Talk about trailblazers. My point with this rambling is that innovation is so beautiful and that there are dead ends and wrong turns with innovators, but there's something about that compulsion to move forward that has a kind of radiance to it when you see it in retrospect. You just think how brave to risk everything doing this just because you loved the result. You know, and, and so Rene Redzepi is that kind of thinker. And what he cooks at Noma is nothing you have ever tasted in your life. Now, I mean that. You will not taste anything familiar. It will be like flavor combinations you didn't know existed. There will be flavors on your tongue that you've never conceived of. And it's like if, if you saw a color that you didn't know existed. And it's like, it's not red, it's not blue, it's not green, it's just a new color. So he does that by finding, through foraging, all these greens and herbs and beach grasses and weird things people didn't know they could eat by incorporating insects into the meal in ways that, that are often invisible. They involve roasting and fermenting and stuff. Fermenting all sorts of things to create different kinds of garums and soy sauces, sort of secret sauces that they based onto things. Something they call trash cooking, which is using parts of animals and parts of vegetables and fruits and stuff, even pits and things that you wouldn't know you could eat, but they can be delicious when transformed. In every respect, the combination of all these methods creates something that's simply never been eaten before. And one of the cool things about it, like when he does the pop-up, he did the pop-up, the Noma pop-up in Mexico in Tulum, which is sort of the third act of the book, his leading up to that and trying to make it work. Very difficult. Basically almost went bankrupt. Yeah, like many startups. That's what it reminded yeah, yeah, me of. Yeah, exactly. So true. Yeah, yeah exactly. And he also got sick and he, you know, he lost his main investor. There's a lot of drama in the third act of the book that's really a business drama in yeah, a way. Yeah. And he created this meal using indigenous Yucatecan ingredients primarily and all their methods, all these techniques I talked about. And the Washington Post declared it the meal of the decade. Yeah. They said it was like a work of art, right? And it's gone. It'll never happen again. 
He just erased it. It ended. Probably there are recipes somewhere, but you can't recreate them because he doesn't have those ingredients and he doesn't have that particular setting and those particular purveyors. I mean, they were getting all sorts of weird cactus buds from a particular place in Escamoles, which are ant eggs from a certain region in Oaxaca. Like, And also help from locals, right? Locals oh, yeah. were part of the scene as well. So it's not like you can take that, even if there oh, are yeah. recipes, and just plop it down on 48th Street and open it up, right? So there's no, no way. I mean, he even... <laughs> You know, this is very Rene. He essentially hired all the women of a Mayan village in Yucatan to work as employees of Noma, Mexico, every night making the tortillas, which they were thrilled about because it was it was fun for them. And so we went to Yaxuna, a village, Mayan village, and we had cochinita pibil, which is a dish of pork cooked in the ground, wrapped in banana leaves, sour orange, smoky, salty fatty, juicy. And then the men were making that. Some of the tasks in food in Mexico are very segregated by gender in that way. That's just the traditional culture. And then the women make the tortillas. Like the men don't really touch the masa. I mean, sometimes the taquero will. But traditionally speaking, the men aren't supposed to. So there was this group of women making, they had a comal, which is the, you know, surface on which they make the tortillas. And the tortillas were made with local corn. They were puffing up beautifully. Rene, in spite of being the greatest chef in the world, could never make a decent tortilla when I was with him. I mean, he never really succeeded at it. Even I did. But he it eluded him, right? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I know. See, I mean, flaws are, are lovely. You know, they I mean, are, I think yeah. it was cool that he accepted his own imperfection. He did kind his of... His own limitations. Yeah, he did yeah. kind of get his head around mole, the, the, the most complex and ever-shifting element of Mexican cuisine. It's, it's sort of indefinable and there's infinite varieties of it, but he could never do a tortilla. So he hired these women. He, he, he told his friend Roberto Solis, he's like, you know, can you ask them what they're doing in April and May? And Roberto's like, why, Renee? You know? And he's <laughs> like, these tortillas are rad. Yeah. They're gold standard. Let's bring them into the process. So Thomas Keller, famous chef, came to Noma, Mexico. His tortillas are you know, made by these women from the village. And they're working alongside, you know, all the different chefs and stuff. It was lovely. Yeah, what a community. I mean, it's really yeah. just the word community was one that kept popping out at me over and over again throughout this book. And I think when work is at its best, it does feel like a community because work doesn't make many of us rich. That's not how work is structured for 99% of us. But it brings us a sense of extended identity. It brings us a sense of accomplishment. And it's a joy to work around people who are experts in their own field. And that's what I really relished in, in in your book, Hungry. It was just fascinating to watch everybody come together like a well-oiled machine, mm. but also be individually experts. Like they were good at what they were doing, but they were made better by the whole. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I think that they found it immensely challenging and exhausting, but exhilarating too. I think the only person who ultimately didn't take much joy from it was Rene Redza. And that's something that bewilders me about creative people like this. Probably a Steve Jobs would be similar in that regard. It seemed like at the point when they had conquered it. Yeah. Actually, the very day the Washington Post said this was the meal of the decade. I wandered from my hotel over to Noma, Mexico. We got an espresso. I was like, Renee, dude, you made it. We've been doing this for years. You've been building up to this. We've traveled through the Yucatan, Oaxaca, studying Mexican cuisine, ingredients. I mean, countless, countless, countless moving parts. Absolutely impossible to pull off. He moved 90 people from Copenhagen to Tulum. Their children put the children in schools. I mean, it's complete. It's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and you did it. He did. You achieved it. How do you feel? And he was like, I don't know. 
I gotta, I'm restless. I gotta move on. I just like, I want to get. He blew it up. He, yeah, he blew it up again. He's like, I, I'm, I'm thinking about Copenhagen now. We have to go back to Greenland and Iceland and the Faroe Islands and research the ingredients of Scandinavia again. I've lost my way. I have to refocus. Ah, and I was like, you can't even take pleasure in this. It's so interesting. It was like that word anhedonia, which is like the inability to, to, to experience pleasure. You know, I mean, I think he's proud. Yeah. But, you know, he's sometimes proud in retrospect, but he's very difficult to get to talk about the past. Like there are certain passages about his childhood and his father when they would spend summers back in Macedonia, which was part of the former Yugoslavia. It was like super rural. You know, Rene was milking cows and sleeping on the floor, foraging for mushrooms. You know, they'd make chamomile tea with flowers they found. Sounds idyllic. Yeah, but not. it's not. It's not yeah, a great but practical was, way to live. It's yeah. poverty. Right. You know, yes. It's the reality. But when I tried to get him to talk about it, it's very difficult. It was try, like extracting juice from a raisin. It was, it was like, come on, man, give me a little, I need a little yeah, background here. Yeah. And he just doesn't move backwards. He just yeah, always moves forward. Neither do you. I mean, it's not like you especially enjoyed looking back on your life story and interjecting it into your book. I mean, maybe there's yeah. some continued corollaries there. And also, it's not like I see you gloating about the success of your book. While you're happy about it, you also seem committed to your family and to upcoming projects oh, yeah. and your work at Esquire, right? So you're looking forward as well. Well, you know, the reality, you know, people see Instagram, they're like, whoa, this guy, he just goes out to fancy meals all the time. <laughs> well, you do. Yeah, screw him. Yeah. But it, it, you know, I don't blame them. But you know what I'm not putting is okay. I'll give you an example. I'll just be just be totally real. Last night we had this great event in Brooklyn, and after it we went out to Maison Yaki uh, from the Olmstead team. It's a yakitori place. Ruth Reichel joined us. Malcolm Livingston, Phyllis Grant, another great food writer. My friend Lawrence and some other friends from college. It was lovely. I love a big table. Yeah, boisterous. We didn't even order. We just said just bring whatever. I had a martini, which is my drink. But things got a lot of control. We ended up getting home quite late. I was with my daughter, 17 as well. And we got home late. And, uh, you know, the, our nanny who was babysitting our children had worked very late as yes, a result. And yeah. it's not fair to have her come early the next morning. I mean, because she's got to get home herself. So she came in, you know, much later this morning. And as soon as she got there, I came in here to the city. Yeah, It's only fair. Right. But, you know, there's a lot of days like this. And my wife has to come into the city to work. So from 8 to 10, 30, 11, I was just changing diapers and putting the babies in their nap and, you know, playing. I, I mean, I'm not some freaking hero for no, this. No, not should, at all. Not at all. It's just, but I'm saying, you know, my wife works in the city. My ex-wife works in the city. I have four children. I'm the one at home. Yeah. And I'm the one taking them to the orthodontist right. and taking them to their basketball camp. You know, there's been days, of course, when Candace couldn't come. And so an entire day is yeah, written you. off from writing. I mean, I don't do any writing. I just take care of the babies all day. I love it. I love the little guys. I find it very satisfying. But juggling all this is hard. I'm not just saying this. I'm not checked out as a dad. Like, no, I'm very present as a dad. Yeah. And, and my ex-wife lives next door maybe like three houses, but diagonally sort of next door because of the structure of where the houses are. But basically it's 20 seconds, 30 seconds for the older kids to go back and forth. Yeah. So yeah. they do that. They just, Margo and Toby just drop They're in. in and out, yeah. Yeah, dad, make me lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can't resist doing. I make, I mean, I make frittatas all the time for everybody. Well, you know, it's good to know that you can cook a little bit for a food writer. I mean, I think yeah. that's the nice part of that story. Yeah. I can cook. I can cook. I, 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 it's very simple cooking. And I also like that you're not adverse to talking about your role as a dad. And we're seeing it more and more in your social media feed. Like you're talking about your real life. And I think that is very helpful because 
A lot of people think you're a writer, you have this glamorous life, right? You work for Esquire, you're on a plane all the time. And the truth is, you're not just a writer. Like none of us is just one thing. And so I don't know if you speak to that when you speak to a lot of, you know, panels or when you're doing podcasts. Do people have a different sense of writing than what it really is? They sure do. Yeah, yeah. They think it's glamour. That has nothing to do with the glamour. uh, One line of thinking from a lot of feminist friends of mine that has really made an impact on me, and there's many, but one thing is that, you know, female writers who are mothers are always asked, well, how do you juggle being a mother and being a writer? Yeah. But male writers are never asked this. And that's that's a crock (laughs) because I'm juggling it all the time. Please ask me. I will know. Ask the dudes. Ask the dudes about it. Ask Michael Chabin. Michael Chabin, this great American novelist, also has four children and has written a whole book about it called Pops. It's a great book. I mean, he's a sensitive guy and he's open to talking about it. But ask everybody else. You know, and, and Jonathan Franzen doesn't even have kids. So, like, you know, ask him. That's a different factor there. That's like, right. But I think a lot of men don't have answers for it. That's, oh. that's the well, interesting that's... thing for me. Like, you know, how do you <laughs> juggle it all? Well, I don't. I have help. I have a nanny. I have this. I have that. They're not as involved as you are and maybe aren't as part of their children's story. But Oh, come on. It wouldn't be fair to the children. It wouldn't yeah. be fair to my wife. And frankly, it wouldn't be fair to my ex-wife if I was just checked out. That's, I love it. It's the truth. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I wrote most of the book by hand. I wrote it in longhand on trains, on planes, in bars that I was covering for Esquire. Yeah. And in the, the public library down the street. And what I would do when I get two hours, three hours without taking care of children, I sneak away and say, oh, I think I'm going to write the Norway section now, or I'm going to write that Mary Das section where I almost lost a hotel room. And I do it by hand because it's the only way I can focus. Otherwise, if I have my laptop on or my phone on, I'll get sucked into the Instagram, Facebook, political debate hole. Which is going nowhere. Yeah. So. Well, it's important. It's important to be informed. But I mean, we all have work to do. And I I would find that it would just time suck and no book would ever get done that way. I hear from a lot of people, Laurie, like, well, I would write a book if I had time. And I'm like, listen, you really want to say that to me? Yeah. I'm writing a book right now. (laughs) I hear that too. Like, where do you find the time? I'm like, well, you know, there's 24 (laughs) hours in a day and I do my work for eight hours. And then I've time manage the rest of my day. I don't have kids, so I can imagine my life is a little bit easier than yours. Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, look, Elena Regan, the chef from Chicago, I did one of my book events with. Yeah. She doesn't have kids. She and her wife would like to have kids, but she does have several restaurants and several different projects in the works. She's got a lot going on. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily, I, I'm not saying that kids are the main obstacle or struggle. They are just one component of it. I mean, I know people don't have kids, but they have parents with severe medical problems, you know, and that, that can undo you and take up so much time. And we all have these challenges, really. And yet you said yes. You said yes to living a different type of life where you're a writer and you're a parent. You said yes to following Renee Redzepi. You say yes to podcasts. You say yes to speaking engagements. You say yes when other people say no. When I think about some of the key takeaways for the book, one of them for me is that I need to start saying, I mean, I say yes to a lot of things, but yeah. I still say no to plenty of things that may change my life. So I don't yeah. know. What are some of the takeaways from this book? Say yes. And that adventure could be a meal at Massimo Batura's restaurant in Italy, or it could be a get together with your college roommates who you haven't seen in a long time. And one is struggling with cancer. You know, I mean, I had a friend take his own life earlier this year. You know, I miss him. I wish I could have seen him and taken the time. You know, I mean, it's like, why are we here? We all have the work to do. 
And we all have the demands of domestic life, no matter who you are. We have the bills to pay, the car repairs need to be, the insurance, the somebody has to do the dishes, somebody has to take out the recycling. Believe you me, I find those things extraordinarily tedious. I hate them, but <laughs> we all have to do them. So what space can you find outside of those demands to live a life, that, you know, to learn like you're talking about? Sometimes it's just calling an old friend and going to a bar together or going for a walk together. You know, I send postcards to people perpetually. I wrote about this for Real Simple. I will carry around pre-stamped postcards and when I'm on a plane or a train and I'm sick of writing my articles, I will dash off one to Margot, my daughter, or Toby, my 13-year-old son, or my parents or old friends. And it's not a profound thought on this postcard. It might just be like, this dude on the plane just did something really rude or, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just thought about this, you know, and then two lines and I just drop it in a mailbox, which are increasingly difficult to they find are. mailboxes. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. That's a way of connecting. It's yeah. sort of like say yes to connecting. I also say yes to French fries. <laughs> I say yes to martinis. I say yes to olives and oysters and cheeseburgers. I have to say no to some things. Yeah, Lori. what are you like saying I, no to right now? Well, I got to get healthier. I, I want to start saying no to meat more. Yeah, frankly. good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to be eating a lot of meat during the off hours right. because I have to do it for my job. My job is eat everything. That is like actually my job description. I can't judge restaurants if I don't try everything on the menus there. But in my private life, I'm really, really moving toward plant-based. And I feel much better when I do. And sometimes I'll have weeks, I'll have a whole week where I don't go to a restaurant. <laughs> Believe me, it's weird for me. I when, bet it is weird. Yeah. It's like not going to the office. Yeah. Yeah. And that whole week, I'll just eat salads and roasted vegetables, rice and beans, guacamole, you know, maybe an egg dish. Sure. Um, but I feel so good. Yeah. I really feel different. I mean, I really, really do. I've talked about this with vegan friends of mine and all of whom look like they're 22. Uh-huh, they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think my years of vegetarianism and veganism have done me well yeah. as well. I do find, though, that as I get older, I need more sources of protein. And I'm grateful that the world is giving us Impossible Burgers and Beyond yeah. Burgers. Have you tried them yet? I did try the product, but it was a meatball. They did, oh, did like a yeah. meatball thing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't love uh, it. But, you know, it's interesting seeing chefs pioneer new pathways of plant-based eating and thinking. You know, Crossroads Kitchen in Los Angeles run by Tal Ronan is an all-vegan restaurant. It's also a party. You know, they're cranking the stones. They have great cocktails. There's celebrities in there. It's fun. It's like also happens to be vegan and you feel good eating there. I mean, Jose Andres has a whole vegetable cookbook coming out or that's out. Daniel Patterson, Renee Redzepi. A lot of these chefs are thinking about this hard and I think they know is better for you. Even if they incorporate meat, they're starting to almost take a more kind of Japanese approach where meat is just like a component of it. It's not necessarily like a big slab of steak. Well, as a woman who lives a couple miles away from a place called Angus Barn, I can definitely... Oh. Do you remember that place? Oh, I remember Angus yeah, Barn. Boy, that yeah. was beloved in the local region. Beef Eaters Paradise is what it's known as. So as someone who lives near that, I mean, I don't want to eat fake meat that's made to look like meat. If I eat vegetables or if I eat a meat substitute, I want it to be the thing it is and not trying to yeah. masquerade as a steak or masquerade as a hot dog. So I like a lot of these new approaches to veganism and vegetarianism, but it's not perfect. You know, there are some places I can't eat. You know, there's certain cuisines, like a lot of Middle Eastern cuisine, certain modes of Italian cuisine where you can eat vegetarian at least. 
very easily and with great delight, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. And not be able to get off my couch. Yes. Well, but like hummus is the most <laughs> oh, delicious yeah. thing. Hummus I mean, it's great. vegan and it's, you know, I could eat bowls of hummus and bowls of guacamole. Like, I, you know, so I don't need a fake meat. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I applaud them trying and I, I, if it makes a difference in the world, you know, more power to them. But it's not necessarily what I want. To me, one of the great dishes of human civilization is rice and beans. You know, just just rice and beans and a little sliced avocado on the side, a little salsa. I'm good to go. I'm good. I mean, I'm a Cali boy. That's like good food, you know. So that's vegan or can be. It It should be, be, you know. So I don't necessarily need things that are replicas of hot dogs. You know, <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that we're aligned on that. You know, if people want to stay tuned and figure out what's next for you or where to see you on your upcoming book tour, like how do they follow your world? Where should they go? Most people seem to engage with Instagram. My wife got me to do Instagram about three years ago. I actually weirdly wasn't on it, which is it's almost, not weird. It's healthy. Yeah. That was my thinking. But it's almost like self-sabotage as the food writer not to be on Instagram. So now I have like 25,000 followers and they are very involved. <laughs> they send me a lot of comments. I love it. I mean, they they really engage. That's the Gordoneer. I'm at the Gordoneer. I don't do Twitter much. No. You got a website? Yeah, jeffgordoneer.com. But I, I haven't even updated it. It doesn't even have the hungry image. I mean, that was on my to-do list. Laurie. <laughs> Behind the baby shit, right? Yeah, I just never stuff. got yeah. there. I mean, I, I, it's funny. There are these ghost ships of author websites out there that have never been updated. And they're like two books behind. I mean, I think that jeffgordoneer.com doesn't have Here She Comes Now, this essay collection I did in 2015. It doesn't have Hungry. Just has like a picture of me and maybe some crackers or something. I mean, what the hell? But I, wait, I just... Wait, this runs counterintuitive. And, and I don't mean to just take, <laughs> take a minute on this and be selfish. But, you know, I'm working on this book, right? And so I'm working with Macmillan and Holt, mm. right? That's my publisher. And the whole thing with them is, I mean, they're great. Libby Burton's my editor. She's oh. amazing. She's genius. She's got a new book out called The Last Book Party. She edited that. So it's just fantastic. But they are strong and heavy on marketing. Yeah. And so it's like, get your website updated. Yeah. Get your Twitter. Get your Instagram up and running, right? And so I feel like I'm always playing catch up. And here you are. You've got one thing. You've got Instagram and you're no, doing no, just I do, fine. I so. do Facebook a lot. <laughs> I do tweet things. And but you're giving me hope that either I'll never get caught up. You can't yeah, do everything. Right. You can't. Do, I don't think people actually go to the websites that much now. They interact with you through social media. You think about what you're doing on your phone. You don't actually go to the author's no, website that I much. Don't. You know what's the secret? Tell me. LinkedIn. I've heard this. It's like the sleuthy, sneaky way to get people's attention because there are fewer people and they're actually doing work and paying attention on there without the distraction of politics. I post stuff about the book tour and the book on LinkedIn and my Esquire articles, even my poetry reviews, and they'll come back and it has 5,000 views. Amazing. You know, and and a poetry review and like 10,000 views on a book tour date thing. And I've met people at book events who say, oh, I I heard about this on LinkedIn. And I'm like, oh, yeah. That's because real people who are working (laughs) are hungry for this kind of content. I love that. And they, they are coming at it from a networking, business, entrepreneurial, creative perspective, as opposed to like you say a political perspective or a limitation of Facebook is that it is your friend, so to speak. That's actually, I mean, I'm at 5,000 friends. Yeah, you need a page now. Yeah, Yeah. well, I don't want to do that. I want it to actually be me, but then it can't go beyond the 5,000. So it becomes sort of absurd because it's almost the definition of preaching to the choir. You're just telling the same friends over and over, hey, I'm in Detroit. 
I'm in Detroit, yo. And all six of them who are in Detroit I'm might in go. Detroit. Yeah. Well, they might go, but they're getting sick of you. <laughs> they're like, stop with the Detroit. Okay, I'm coming. I RSVP'd. Wait, I can't wait to badger the hell out of my friends. That's what I'm hearing out yeah. of this, right? Let me tell you something. There will be some that are annoyed. Yeah. Will they forgive me? Just push on past it. I'm serious. I've learned this. It's like you have to tell people scores of times to get them to remember. And I've been getting big crowds at these events, and I didn't expect it. And a lot of them come up. They say, oh, I saw it on Twitter this morning, and I, or I saw it on LinkedIn, or I saw it on your Instagram post on your story. I mean, the endless reminders, if people find it annoying, they just check out. Yeah. But you kind of just have to keep telling them. It's a war. It's a war out there. Great. <laughs> it is. It's, I mean, there's so many competing things. Totally. It's so noisy. You're absolutely right. It's good to know that you're encouraging me to push past and be a little bit annoying. That's okay. Like, I'm all right with that. And to not get defeated when I think nobody's paying attention because clearly somebody's paying attention to you. That gives me hope. There's also a lot to be said for that day. Yeah. Good to I know. am a terrible planner. I am a terrible advanced planner. As my wife would tell you it is a... Uh, a small fracture <laughs> sometimes in our relationship. I, I annoy everybody with this. But if you tell me, if we try to plan, let's meet up for lunch, I'll never get around to setting it up. But if you happen to text me, I'm in town, it's 1130, what are you doing for lunch? I am probably have no plans. Yeah. So it's weird. So I've found that if you tell people, what are you doing tonight? There's a reading. Tell them almost at noon. Like, I don't know what you're doing at seven, but we're, you know, Ruth Reichel and I and Malcolm Livingston are doing an event in Brooklyn. About a third of the people last night, I think, were from that very conversation. They're like, oh, yeah, I have nothing planned. <laughs> well, most I guess of I'll us swing don't. by. That's right. But if you tell them two months ahead, they have no idea what they're doing. I think there's always a bias towards no, but this is good to know because my journey to still meet up in a random city and have something to eat with you holds true. I'm going to keep looking on Instagram okay. and who knows, it may happen one day yeah. where we're both in the same place and we can grab a bite to eat. That'd be great. Yeah. But it was good to see you today. Thanks again Thanks, for being Laurie. a really, guest really on Let's it. Fix Work. Yeah. Thanks for reading the book twice. Oh man, I got to do my research. That's how That's I do it. That's serious though. Yeah. Thank you. I don't think I've ever done that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> one was on a beach at Top. North Carolina, and one oh. was at home. So there you go. Cool. Thank well, you. again, thanks again for being a guest. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeff Gordonier. You can find more information about Jeff or about his new book, Hungry, or about his previous books, or about anything really, but not the answers to life. We don't have those, but you can find it all in the show notes if you go to laurierudeman.com forward slash let's fix work dash 70. And if you're on that page, if you're on my website, you can also stick in your name and your email address, and we will give you a PDF, which are key takeaways from the episode. Let's Fix Work was recorded live in New York City at Hangar Studios in Midtown Manhattan. And everybody there, including the producer, Jax, was great. Now, quick story, Jackson is his name, and I can't hear for shit. So I'm like, what? Jax? Jackson? Jads? So I must have called him like 50 different names, but Jackson was amazing and I'm really grateful for his help. We have additional production help from my dear friend, Danny Osment, who is the producer of the show. Emerald City Productions always makes us sound great. And if you're interested in podcasting, you got to hit up Danny. He will set you free and set you in the right direction. Now that's all for today. And I hope you're enjoying your summer. If you need to give me any feedback or want to reach out to me, it's hello at letsfixwork.com. And we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. 
If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.